Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 614 in the Twin Cities. Feeling a little chilly out there. 24 degrees. As May Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. I've been following sort of the ins and outs of this extraordinary story of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He is the Saudi journalist who was actually living in the U.S., uh, wrote for the Washington Post. He was murdered uh, several weeks ago inside the Saudi Arabian consulate. Uh, the Saudis have changed their story many, many times. The latest twist is that apparently CIA sources are saying that the uh, – assassination of Jamal Khashoggi was in fact ordered by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who's basically running the country and uh, Saudi Arabia is now saying that some of those involved in the plot could face the death penalty. Helping us to sort this out is somebody who is no stranger to CCO Radio, Jack Rice, attorney and former CIA officer. Jack, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be with you again. Thank you so much. Well, absolutely. I mean, no one better to talk about this than you. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, you you were in the CIA. Uh, the, the Saudis' version of this story has changed almost daily. Yeah, I mean, let's let's put it nicely. They're guilty. I mean, they did it. That that's the thing. I mean, I think about this as a former prosecutor. I think about this as a criminal defense attorney. So I, I realize where we are. But let's let's look at some of the evidence that's actually out there right now. Here's what we know. We know that Mohammed bin Salman, he's the crown prince, his brother is Khalid bin Salman. Khalid bin Salman is the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. There was an audio tape of the Saudi ambassador talking to Jamal Khashoggi, and he's telling him that he needs to go to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to pick up papers so he can actually get married. So, in fact, it's the crown prince's brother who says, we want you to go to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. As soon as he arrives, there's a hit team of at least 15 Saudis who are there. There's an audio tape of that actual part of this, this entire scenario. Of those 15, what we find out is that the, uh, the Turks had an audio tape that was inside of the Saudi consulate. They caught this on audio, and what they have is Jamal Khashoggi being murdered and tortured, and ultimately, even one line where they say, okay, now we have a body. That needs to be disposed of. This is all part of this issue. Now, this is the evidence that we're seeing, besides about the 15 different stories that the Saudis came up, came up in the first place. What's astounding here, of course, is you're saying that the Saudis are saying, we might be looking at the death penalty down the line for somebody at the bottom of the heap, when in fact, if anything is going on in Saudi Arabia... It goes on because Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown prince, is the guy who's making the call. He is the future of the kingdom. He is a guy that everybody is looking to for the leadership. What, Jack, what do you th- – I mean, it, w- w- as I read all these stories, you almost get the impression that the Saudis didn't think this was going to be a big deal and blow up into an enormous international incident. 
Oh, I think you're right. I, I, they've completely and utterly misplayed this. But I think one of the things that we have seen is that the Saudis have been more than willing to swing their weight in a lot of places for a very long time. And the Americans have been very blind in terms of their willingness to hold them responsible for this. In fact, when even half of this stuff was out there, the president himself, President Trump, came out and said, well, I'm sure it was just some rogue element in the Saudi kingdom who made this call. This is despite a lot of the evidence already being out there. This is the same president who turned around and said, if we actually stop selling arms to the Saudis now, we would be punishing ourselves. So in other words, literally the very thing that the Americans have control over, power over, influence over, is the very thing that this president is claiming we shouldn't be doing. And that's astounding, not just because of this guy, not just this president. I'm talking any Republican, any Democrat that goes back at least, oh, post-World War II, 1946 and onward. Um. Yet the president obviously has been at odds with his own intelligence uh, investigations and his own intelligence bureaus, excuse me, really since the beginning. Yet you have the CIA basically leaking the fact that they're saying it is the crown prince who is behind this, uh, which is you know pretty strong evidence. And, and certainly it's been building all along. As you said, nothing happens in Saudi Arabia without his okay without his stamp of approval, yet you've got this extraordinary situation now in the wake of this, the fact that it's become an international incident, that the crown prince might actually turn on his subordinates who he ordered to carry out this and, and give them the death penalty. I and mean, what does that do to him, both in terms of his standing with the U.S., but also his standing within Saudi Arabia? I mean, who wants to be aligned with him? Well, that doesn't shock me. I mean, if we look back, and you can you can look back at the original king, out back in, in the late 30s. And what we know is that one of his sons was always the king, always the king until the second generation. The crown prince is the second generation. What we have found is that he's been more than willing to be cold-blooded. Within the last year, he essentially invited everybody in the senior leadership from Saudi Arabia to the capital. He then essentially arrested them and said, you are going to defer to me at all levels, you're going to actually give up a lot of your power, a lot of your resources to me. This is this guy, this crown prince, is somebody who understands realpolitik, not in the way that Kissinger did in the United States, but in a very cold-blooded way that says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're against me, this is how we play. Uh, we're talking with Jack Rice, former CIA officer, obviously former host here at uh, CCO Radio, uh, prosecutor, former prosecutor and attorney. Uh, what, what happens now? I mean, what's the next step here? Because it, it looks like the U.S. is really sort of in a bind, yet the president's kind of saying the same things that, that you've been saying, he's been saying. I mean, what happens next? What's the next step? Well, it's clear that what the crown prince is doing and what the kingdom is doing itself is they, they have been backtracking and cracking, cracking and backing away from this story from the very beginning, because every time they would say something, it turned out to not be true. Um, what they are doing right now and what you should expect to see in the coming days and weeks and even months is a separation and a protection of the crown prince from all of those below him. And so you will start seeing that. You're going to start seeing stories by expectations. You're going to start seeing stories and even allegations that there are, quote-unquote, rogue elements, which we have no evidence of whatsoever, that are actually coming out to establish that there's a distinction between the crown prince on the one side and everybody below him on the other side. You're going to start seeing that issue. In addition to that, my expectation is you're going to see the administration 
come back because of a couple of laws that are out there, also because of the elections, where there will be some minimal punishment of the Saudis. Frankly, what we have seen to date was a limitation on the visas given to the 17 people who've been targeted. That literally means they can't come and go to Disneyland. That's the American response at this point. But you got to understand the threat that we're talking about in terms of the money we're saying. $69.4 billion was sold to the, to the Saudis in terms of weaponry in 2017 alone. Other than the United States and the Chinese, nobody spends more money on weapons than the Saudis do. And the Americans are the number one seller of weapons to the Saudis. It's a massive amount of money. It gives them enormous leverage. And when you have a president who's willing to say, you know what, you do whatever you want, we'll just keep selling to you. It gives them even more encouragement. Right. And, and you know, it, there's obviously, I mean, one of these individuals who, who murdered Khashoggi even had a bone saw so in order to, to dismember the body. I mean, they had a body double that dressed in Jamal Khashoggi's clothes and paraded around Istanbul going to prominent tourist spots so he'd be caught on surveillance tape to make it look like he was still alive. I mean, it, it, every aspect of this plot, uh, which sounds like sort of a, a bad movie, uh, it clearly suggests premeditation. No, of course it's premeditated. Again, you go back and you take a look at just the fact that you had the Crown Prince's brother inviting him to this specific spot, and as soon as he arrived, there was a, there was a hit team that was literally inside the doors. So that really highlights the issue. But, but maybe in the broader sense, and this is the bigger sense now, one of the, the problems that the U.S. has, and this goes long before this president, it includes the last one, the ones before that, all the Democrats, all the Republicans, is, is that the United States has consistently, since World War II, uh, supported totalitarian dictatorships in the Middle East. I mean, they just have. We saw this with the Iranians. They did this after they, they uh, uh, removed uh, the, the, the elected leader in '53. We've seen this with the Saudis. We saw this with the Egyptians. We saw this with the Pakistanis. And we've seen this elsewhere because the Americans are looking to sell weaponry. But it's also about, about establishing consistency and stability. This is an American philosophy. And it's one of the reasons the Americans have continued to support the Saudis so consistently, no matter what the Saudis seem to be doing. I mean, you can go back and look at even 9-11 and look at all but two of those involved were actually Saudi citizens. It's just one more little piece. Right. And then you also have Turkey. Turkey seems to be playing this for all it's worth as well, because they're in a difficult position as well. Oh, my goodness, are they ever. If you look at the Turks, President Erdogan, uh, he himself isn't exactly the bulwark of of, uh, of uh, freedom. And, and, cl- and clearly they democracy. were bugging the embassy. Oh, well, you know, that's actually an interesting piece of this, too. And this gives you a sort of a, a hint of exactly what's going on between countries when everybody is watching everybody else. I could take you into Washington and you could look at what's going on inside the Capitol. You can think about what one country is doing to other countries inside of Washington, let alone what's going on in Istanbul, what's going on in Paris, what's going on in Berlin, what's going on worldwide, because that's part of this process. That is the cat and mouse game of not just diplomacy, but in this case, uh, dealing with intelligence organizations and, well, in the case of the Saudis, hit teams. But but certainly the Turks, as you mentioned, President Erdogan certainly is no stranger to, to corruption and, and double dealing as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you look at what just happened more than a year and a half ago, 
They've arrested more journalists than any other country on the planet. They have uh, thousands of people in custody, and we have seen that he has cracked down at such a level that we haven't seen almost any place else except for probably Saudi Arabia. And I think they are playing this at every angle because they know that's to their benefit. The problem that you have here is do you have good guys and bad guys? Is it a black and white question? No, it's not. It, it, there's, there's no good guys and bad guys here. I think there's a lot of shades of gray maybe going towards the um, more complicated. How's that? And does the crown prince survive? Yes. I, th- I think he does. And because and, if you look at what's been going on, is they're already lining up to protect him, and they're already lining up to separate him from the actions themselves. And you're already seeing uh, even this president and even members of Congress who are finding ways to... To provide cover this. and justification. Yeah, and 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 but you get you've got the CIA, CIA saying, "Hey, it was the crown prince." <laughs> Just po- <laughs> poke, poking a finger in the eye a little bit, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's um, that's that's a little inconvenient, doesn't it? Right. All right. Well, listen, um, Jack Rice, a former CIA officer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great insight as always. Thank you so much. All right, the one and only Jack Rice, folks. Yeah, just. Extraordinary. I mean, you, you read about this and it's just, um, the Saudis and as, as Jack Rice was explaining, coming in, uh, just hours before this killing, uh, the, the Crown Prince's brother saying he had to go to the embassy to get these documents so that he could get married. And so he goes to the Turkish, uh, the Saudi embassy in, in Istanbul. Uh, the the body double that emerges in, in the murdered journalist's clothing walking around Istanbul to, to some of the biggest tourist attractions available, hoping to be noticed, hoping to be seen, hoping to be captured on surveillance camera, and, and all of this, and then them flying back and apparently getting rid of the body. Uh, they still haven't found the body of this journalist. Uh, it, it's an amazing story, and obviously the Saudi crown prince, according to the CIA leaks that have come out, is the one behind this who ordered this. And yet he's apparently saying, or the Saudis are now saying, that some of those who carried out this execution, uh, which is what it was, this murderous execution, uh, will now be subject to the death penalty. Well, coming up in our next half hour, we are going to talk about uh, the Southwest LRT. It's one of the most expensive projects in Minnesota history. It's one of the longest in the planning stages, and it has cleared a major hurdle this past week. But is this it? It appears to be it. It looks like the funding is in place. Uh, it remains extremely controversial with a lot of groups uh, arguing that the environmental and safety concerns are, are still very real and, and need to be worked out. There have been lawsuits, lawsuits that have been filed, lawsuits that have been thrown out. Uh, so we're going to talk uh, with the head of the Met Council And we're also going to talk to one of the community members who's fought this long and hard uh, because this is something that, as I said, has been going on for a long, long time. And it looks like uh, it's possibly becoming a reality. But first, we want to take a break, uh, give you some pay some bills. And then also uh, we will give you some weather because it's a little chilly out there. You may have noticed. So keep it here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 6.34 in the Twin Cities. Well, one of the big stories that happened this week 
was the fact that the Southwest Light Rail Transit Project cleared a major federal hurdle and construction is now supposed to begin on this $2 billion, yes, that's billion-dollar light rail project that goes from Eden Prairie uh, all the way kind of up through uh, Hopkins, St. Louis Park, Minneapolis to uh, Target Field Station. Uh, this project has been talked about for years. Uh, my next guest probably might have an idea about how long it's been talked about and discussed. There have been so many hurdles. Uh, my next guest is the chair of the Met Council. We're also going to talk a little later this half hour with uh, one of the citizens who has been involved in trying to block the project uh, for safety and environmental reasons. Right now, though, I am joined by Aline Churamoff. She is the chair of the Met Council. And Aline, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, that's right. It's Aline Churamoff. Aline Churamoff, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you so much. Welcome to the show. I I, I feel like I've been doing stories on this proposed, proposed Southwest LRT for more than 10 years. I mean, this has been kicked around for a long, long time. Is this finally it? Well, this, you're right. It's about two decades in the making. Two decades. And All right. That's decision. how long. I've probably been doing it for two <laughs> decades. Yes. <laughs> so the decision that we received this week from the Federal Transit Administration allows us to award the civil construction bids. Basically, the approval was that we could spend our local construction on the project, and those local dollars would be eligible for federal reimbursement when we receive the full funding grant agreement from from the Transit Administration in the future. So this was a pretty big moment. So on Wednesday, we received notification from the FTA. And then on Thursday, we were able to award a roughly $800 million civil construction bid to two local bidders to begin construction, you know, yet this year. All right. So, so, I mean, construction actually is going to start this winter. Well, so what they'll do probably in this com- in December, once we um, issue what we call um, a limited notice to proceed, is they'll do kind of they'll start gearing up for heavy construction next year. So you won't see any major um, disruption or anything like that. But this really allows us to make sure that our contractors are ready. They've got the workforce in place, and you know have been able to procure those long lead items that they'll need to be ready for heavy construction starting next year. Okay. Right now, the price tag is $2 billion. Back, I think, in 2011, it was $1.2 billion. Uh, you know, maybe it was 10 years or so before that, it was $425 million. Obviously, as, as the years have passed, the price of this thing has gone up and up. And, and it tends to be when there, these kinds of massive you know, construction projects occur, there are costs that, that happen that, that are not, cannot be foreseen. I mean, how comfortable are you with that $2 billion figure? I, we're pretty comfortable with it right now. When you look at the overall project, and this is kind of in the weeds, but of the $2 billion, we're going to have 85% of the $2 billion under contract. So that means that we're already going to have procured and signed contracts with 85% of the work of the project. We still have a bit left to do with what we call a systems contract, but that's a pretty good number. We also have a significant contingency built into that $2 billion number, and that's really also required by our federal partners because we all want to make sure that we have enough money to build the project once we actually get in the ground and start moving dirt, you know, things come up from time to time and we want to make sure that we have enough buffer in there to be able to accommodate that. Well, and I've seen, you know, one of the models for this project, and I don't know if it's still one that that is 
relatively on that, that had this extraordinary kind of view of almost a, a, a drone-like view of the entire project and the number of bridges that are going to have to be built uh, in this this over this you know, rails and, and uh, wetlands and like that. I mean that that's involved too. I mean that's a lot of bridges that are going to have to be built here. Yes, there's 29 new bridges. So you're right, it is. And it's a, it's a big project. It's a $2 billion infrastructure project. So it's complex. Um, but, you know, the Met Council has nearly two decades of experience building and operating light rail and commuter rail. Um, and we have a very good reputation, both in, the, in from a construction standpoint and an operating standpoint, for being able to deliver projects like this, both here locally as well as nationally. You know, one of the issues that has consistently come up, well, there have been two two objections, as I understand it, is one are environmental concerns, the other safety concerns, uh, specifically about the light rail running right next to freight rails. Is that still going to happen, especially in the Minneapolis corridor? Yes, we will have co-located corridor with um, freight rail and light rail. Um, and that's really not that uncommon. I know in our market, we talk about it as something that's really unique. But if you go out to the East Coast or in other transit markets throughout the country, you see freight rail located next to passenger rail, next to light rail, and a lot of other places. And, and is But are you concerned about safety concerns there? Because that, that, that's been a big issue. Um, I am not, actually. I think that it's, it's very possible. And, it, I mean, it's obviously we've demonstrated it throughout the country on a day-to-day basis that it is really um, possible to operate freight rail and light rail safely next to each other. Okay. How about the environmental concerns? Uh, I know that, that one of the areas where it's starting in Eden Prairie, and this was a few years back, they, they changed that initial place where it was going to start because it's a wetland and, and, and the ground was softer than they thought. Uh, but there there are wetlands that this kind of goes near. There also goes sort of right into the middle of that corridor, the chain of lakes, kind of in between Cedar Lake and Lake of the Isles, which has created a lot of controversy. There's a very popular bike trail there. What about those concerns? You know, I think we go through a really robust environmental process, both locally and the, at the federal level, to make sure that we're mitigating any of those environmental impacts. You see, you've seen changes in this project through o- over the years. And a lot of that's because we've been listening to community members and trying to make sure that we're really responsive to some of those concerns throughout the corridor. We obviously can't, um, we won't get to 100% consensus in terms of the community wanting or not wanting the project, but I think we're in a place now where we've received approval, municipal consent from all of the cities along the corridor, two times in fact, um, and are really, I think, in a good place yeah. to, to begin construction. You know, I was actually in Hopkins doing a completely unrelated story uh, earlier this week, and I hadn't been to downtown Hopkins in a long time. And I was just kind of like, wow, you know, there are all these new buildings and apartments and, you know, businesses. And, you know, I was told that a lot of that construction has been based on the anticipation of the light rail coming through, which I think is so interesting because that's happened in other cities and communities as well. People have been anticipating this would eventually happen. Uh, how much more growth are you expecting in this corridor? And, and are you part, is that completely independent of you or, or are you partners in that in some of Well, them? you know, we definitely partner and kind of have a, an understanding of what some of the cities are planning. I think um, part of what goes into the score, and when we look at how competitive the project will be kind of nationally, part of it is whether or not cities are putting in place what we call transit supportive zoning and things like are you going to build the density around the transit stations to support 
the line, but also to support mobility for folks throughout the region. When you look at the green line, the current green line, the blue line, and the extensions of the green and the blue line, we're looking at $8.9 billion of development. And that doesn't include the stadiums along those corridors because folks have basically said that they want to live near light rail and they want to live um, where they can be have high levels of transit accessibility. Right. You and, start and, to see people really kind of making those choices with their buying decisions. Right. Well, it's, it's something that's definitely happened. And, and, and again, with all the controversy, you know, it's, it's, it's even, even despite all the controversy, it's continued. Um, and you, you were hoping that this would be completed. Uh, I think I saw 2023. Is, is that uh, realistic? I think so. Yep. I mean, that's the plan is that we are, this allows us basically being able to award the civil construction bids allows us to continue forward with construction without any additional delay and without um, needing to increase the cost so that we can really get on schedule with our construction. And then, you know, you've had, um, there, there have been critics, obviously, sort of, you know, sort of maybe to the left of center for, uh, on environmental and safety reasons. But also, uh, there are a lot of Republicans for years at the Capitol have talked about, you know, the cost. You, you, you did address that. But one of the things that I, I often heard from legislators in the Eden Prairie area, uh, most of them Republican, obviously it's a Republican area, is that, People don't really want it. We 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 don't think people are going to ride it. I, I I would guess that you would disagree with that. Well, we're projecting about thirty four thousand rides um, annually, and if you look at I'm sorry, not annually. I think a day, and then you look at the way that we've kind of hit our our um, ridership projections. Actually, kind of blown the twenty thirty and twenty forty projections for both the green line and the blue line. People are clearly. Um, clearly choosing to take light rail, and it's it's demonstrated across all of our corridors. So I'm not I'm not really concerned about that. Well, listen, uh, Aline Chermoff, uh, the chair of the Met Council, thank you so much for your time and and kind of going through and breaking down this project that looks like it's finally actually going to happen. I appreciate your coming on tonight. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. All right, folks. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will be joined by Mary Paddock. Uh, she is a board member of the Lakes and Parks Alliance. She is a member of one of the groups that has been fighting this project for, as Aline mentioned, uh, 20 years it's, it's been discussed. So keep it here, News Radio 830. All right, folks, 649 in the Twin Cities. Uh, we just had on the uh, chair of the Met Council talking about the Southwest Light Rail Pro- Transit Project. Uh, a project that has been discussed for 20 years. It cleared a major federal hurdle uh, this past week. Uh, among those that have been fighting this project and continues to fight this project is uh, the Lake and Parks Alliance of Minneapolis. Uh, Mary Paddock is a board member. I have interviewed ma- you, Mary, m- many times on this subject. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Esme. Good to talk with you. Absolutely. Well, let's, let me ask you, Mary, I, I, and I did mention the concerns as I interviewed um, uh, Ms. Chernoff, uh, Chermoff uh, from the Met Council. Is this it? I mean, do you think this project is finally going to be green-lighted? Because I know your organization is, and other groups have really fought tooth and nail for decades now to block it. Yes, we have. But um, this is not quite yet a slam dunk. First of all, as Ms. Chernoff mentioned, the letter of no prejudice, as it seems to have been reported in the media, is is a letter. It isn't money, and it isn't even a guarantee of money. 
It simply means that if in the future the project is approved for full funding, funding that the Met Council can apply a certain amount of that funding, we don't know how much yet, uh, to cover whatever they want to spend right now. But it should be noted that there are some cities, and I think of Albuquerque among others, that have waited for months, in fact, I believe years, to get their full funding. And in the meantime, costs of steel, costs of labor, and so forth rise, and it becomes more difficult to uh, build this. And we, we know that the current Trump administration uh, is in no mood to be giving full funding to projects like this. In fact, they have uh, specifically identified Southwest LRT as a project that they do not want to give full funding to. So it, it certainly is a little step in that direction, but in most of these projects, there are multiple letters of no prejudice. For example, nine of them in a recent project, in one of the projects in uh, the Twin Cities. So it's, it's a step, but it's not definitive. Okay. And, um, Edmi, could I add a couple of others? Absolutely, because I think, I think it's okay. interesting hearing you say that, and I believe you guys still have a lawsuit that you're appealing, right? Yes, I was just going to say that. Um, our organization, the Lakes and Parks Alliance, brought a lawsuit against the Met Council because we believe that they violated the National Environmental Protection Act. They did not, which requires that you investigate alternatives less environmentally damaging routes before you make a commitment to such a huge uh, environmentally disruptive project such as this. And they, they didn't do that. They just went full bore for this one route, which goes, as you mentioned, through parks and through the lakes area and so on. So Judge, Judge Turnheim ruled against us a few months ago. He said that the commitments the Met Council made, for example, to Minneapolis and St. Louis Parks were, and I'm quoting him exactly here, promises made to be broken. So we did not like that decision, and so we went, we appealed it, we went to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, briefs have been filed, we think we're going to have a hearing in February, and the decision would be made weeks or perhaps months later, if the decision went in our favor, this project would be entirely stopped in its tracks, and the right. council would have to go back and see if there's a less environmentally damaging way to build Southwest. All right. Well, and that's, um, you know, you can win in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's, it's difficult to appeal a federal decision, but it, it certainly has been done and people can win that. So you've got that as well. But you're saying what I think is so interesting, apart from that lawsuit, uh, which you obviously still have hopes for, is that you feel that this funding is, is not finalized. Let me ask you about uh, the safety issues because this is something that, that you hear people talk about, the concern that you're going to have this light rail going right near in certain parts, certainly densely populated areas, uh, right next to freight rail and that that in itself poses a great risk. Um, Ms. Chernoff, I don't know if you heard her, said, hey, listen, that's happening all over the country. We can handle this. Are you still concerned about that? Uh, very, very concerned about this. This, What she did not say and, and what needs to be said is that the freight trains that would be riding, that would be immediately next to the light rail trains 
are carrying explosives. They are carrying ethanol. They are mile-long bomb trains. And they are, they are full of ethanol that's, that's like, you know, think of putting a match to vodka or rubbing alcohol. Right. And but she, right she's now, saying, hey, this co-location stuff works every, every uh, you know, on the East Coast. You got a lot of it there. Not a problem. You're, yeah, you're I, saying it is a problem. Yes, it is a problem because it is a risk. And all that needs to happen is that one of these trains, either the light rail train or the freight train, derail. And remember that the light rail train has electric sparking wires up above it. All it takes is for one of them to derail, and we have a distract- destruction on the scale of what happened at Lac Megantic in Canada a number of years ago, and everybody within a, a half a mile radius could be fried. So we have had derailments of LRT in our system. We've had, I believe, three or four of them. We have had a derailment of the TC and W freight train that runs right next to it. That was in the year 2010. These things happen. And just because an accident has not happened in the past does not mean that it will not happen in the future. Right. And those of us who live near it, near this route are, are quite frightened by that prospect. Right. And we do not like it that the Met Council dismisses these honest concerns. Uh, so the hearing, going back to your lawsuit, the, you're expecting a hearing before the Eighth Circuit sometime in February? Um, we think that's the earliest it would happen. The earliest it would happen. And you get a favorable decision there. That could stop it in its tracks. Yes. And Esme, could I mention one other problem? Absolutely. That it, this has not really been in the news at all. Um, the 30 foot deep tunnel would be built right next to the Calhoun Isles condominiums. And some people may remember that as the green elevator building that burned in the 1970s and then came to life again as a condominium. And there are, I think, 172 units there. This 30 foot deep channel tunnel would be dug 18 inches away from that building. Now, the hundreds of people who live there think, wait a minute, (laughs) this is going to jeopardize our building. And they have excellent engineering uh, companies who have said that the construction at 18 inches would create a situation so dangerous that construction would have to stop. Got it. Is that, that, and I'm going to have to cut you off because we're almost out, but is that part of the lawsuit? No, okay. that's not, but it certainly could be the basis okay, of the second one. All right. Well, listen, Mary Paddock, uh, we have to go now. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you back on a fascinating topic, Southwest LRT. Thank you, Mary. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t